Welcome back to Building Tomorrow, a show dedicated to the ways that tech and innovation are making the world a freer, safer, and more prosperous place. As usual, I'm your host, Paul Matsko. With me today in the studio are Matthew Feeney and Will Duffield. Uh, today we're going to return to a subject that we dedicated an episode to several weeks ago. A place. Not even really a subject, a place. Uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about the transformation of China and all the ways in which new tech is being rolled out and adopted en masse in China in ways that might not even happen in the U.S. And for another five or ten years, China's leapfrogging us technologically. And that story, that episode was the optimistic case, the ways in which these new techs are going to improve life and economic growth in China. But there is a darker side to that tale. This new technology also can serve the Chinese government, the party, the Communist Party, as it seeks to surveil and control its people. Uh, two of these new technologies we're going to focus on today. One is a what's called the social credit system. The other is new applications of facial recognition technology. But let's get started with the social credit score system. Will, what's the like? What's the party line? I mean, I mean that metaphorically as well as well, literally. <laughs> I guess our. Media party line or our popular perception of social credit score systems in China is that they are holistic state systems designed to track the social impact of citizens' behavior and either reward or punish them for it and that this is done with a high degree of, of certainty or efficacy across uh, – large segments of the population. Now, when you drill down into it, when you look at what this state social credit score system is or aspires to be by 2020, the planned delivery or rollout date and what you see on the ground with regard to these trial social credit systems that for the most part have been put into place privately by Chinese firms. Um, there's a lot of uh, a lot of room between the two interpretations or or expectations as to what this is. And, and let's we do need to get to the to I guess it's the Sesame Credit system is is the biggest one. We we do need to talk about that in a minute. Um, before we get there and I think we're going to complicate that story of you know a one giant number that determines pretty much everything you can do as a Chinese citizen or consumer we're going to we're going to mess with that narrative and show how it's not quite what it sounds like and then they're definitely not there yet um but before we do there have been some early signs of a of a of a social credit system in place actually working I think Matthew you uh you and I were talking about this earlier um, about uh, what was it? Something like 15 million Chinese people have been placed on be, because of their low s score on one of these systems. They've been banned from being allowed to buy plane tickets or to ride trains. How does that work? Right. I think it's somewhere between 12, 15 million. I'm not sure of the exact figure, but I think that speaks to what a lot of people in China like about the proposed system. Uh, China is a country that's undergone uh, a, an economic transformation in the last couple of decades. Uh, tons of people are appearing online, but there's not a good centralized uh, credit system. Uh, and a lot of people are not 
paying back loans, uh, even after courts have required them to do so. And uh, systems like this, right, systems by which you can use a very popular private companies like Alibaba, for example, to help utilize a credit system uh, is something that I can, I suppose, sympathize with why people might think that's a good and idea, you're, right? Here you're but, coming out of decades of communism. You don't have a history of, I guess, a, a Protestant work or debt repayment ethic. Um, it's not a high trust society. So yeah, trust is an essential part of any functioning economy and uh, this is an attempt to, to help do that. Uh, the problem is that uh, these people who are put on the, the blacklist, which at the moment is very small because they're still in the trial period. Uh, a lot of what we've seen are, are trial programs uh, that utilize private company uh, data that already exists. But so it's disaggregated. Still, yeah, that's right. But the ultimate goal is uh, 2020 uh, universal system. But if you are uh, – someone who's on this list, it can be really bad. Uh, it will make it difficult to buy train tickets, plane tickets. Uh, there's uh, NPR had a podcast recently talking about how at least in one Chinese city, uh, being on this list uh, prompts your your ringtone to actually be some sort of siren warning people next to you that you're bad at repaying debts. And that that's people who are bad at paying debts. But more nefariously, I think, is what's happened to uh, some people who stand up to the government. Uh, there's at least one journalist who's quite who I've seen reported on, who uh, wrote something the local government didn't like. Uh, they didn't think that his apology was sufficiently sincere, and he can't book uh, train tickets uh, and he can't book travel. Uh, and his life, he's he's been put in this weird situation where he's he's under effective house arrest thanks to this system. Uh, and that's the really worrying application of this so when, system. So when when you're talking about a country in which internal free movement already isn't guaranteed. You need – there's an internal passport system. Um, how much of a new imposition is this? If you say now the private social credit trial system that this fellow is a part of or subject to has prevented from booking plane tickets but before it, the local government being frustrated with him could have prevented him from being allowed to move period. Is this a, a new imposition or just sort of uh, stacking one form of movement restriction on top of another? So, so to clarify, uh, my understanding is this particular system that's being used to you know, get millions of people from being able to purchase plane tickets and train tickets is based off of a government-run pilot system uh, that is for people people who have defaulted on debt. So they're debtors who have had court judgment against them. Now, there is an angle here that's disconcerting, which is the way in which the party will use um, debt default court lawsuits to basically squeeze out entrepreneurs who have angered local party officials. Well, and, and so, generally just restricting the movement of debtors right. seems problematic. So um, but just to clarify, this is not like the – and we'll talk about the private credit score systems um, in, the, in, a, in a bit. This is, this is a government-run system just focused on defaulters, debtors. Yeah, but I want to make sure that we – mention that uh, what what we just discussed, namely the 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 kind of public shaming aspect of this is is uh, not reserved to this sort of system. Uh, there are places in China where if you attempt to jaywalk that your image live will appear and there will be loud uh, condemnation of your behavior over loudspeakers and that that's a very 
uh, creepy application. Do they of this have kind it for trip. bad drivers too? I mean, as a pedestrian, I might welcome that. <laughs> sure, it's like sure, not the jaywalking sure, yeah. thing. Well, one of the uh, uh, one of the articles mentioned uh, the particular jingle for the, it was for the debtors, but they they do something similar for the for jaywalkers in some cities. But the little jingle was so you know you've defaulted on I don't know your car payment, and you might one day be walking down the street and like on a billboard see projected your image, and it will play on a loop. Uh, a jingle that goes, come, come, look at these debtors. It's a person who borrows money and doesn't pay it back. And I don't know what the tune is. I imagine it must be to like Maroon 5 or, or <laughs> some hated band. Yeah. But, um, uh, do but, we have any evidence that this this is effective? Like do we see higher debt repayment rates for it the, in places where they've rolled it out? Is, is the there data? Debt, yeah. On the debt side I, side, I don't know. On the jaywalking side, there's been a number of articles where they noted – at least the city officials are claiming that at these targeted intersections where jaywalking was a problem, the rate has fallen. They did have to train people to respond in the way they wanted. At first, people thought like, oh, I'm famous. I'm on a screen. And they had to be told, no, 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 you're being shamed. Oh, that's exactly <laughs> how it would work here. We, we couldn't do that. That would be instant like e-celebrities. They'd put their Twitch handle up or something with it. Yeah. So, But you have this – I mean it's not at the point where you have a single score across multiple domains across the entire country. It's all kind of pilot programs for you know targeting jaywalking and then in a particular city or debtors across the whole country. But you can see the pieces kind of – Takes a while line, to boil a frog. You could bring all these pieces together into one aggregated system. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's arguable here that like um, – and perhaps we should explain that when we talk about social credit systems, and we're going to talk here about what's called um, Sesame Credit, which is tied to Alibaba, which is the Chinese version of Amazon, basically. But even it does actually more than Amazon in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think uh, it, it certainly, uh, from a bird's eye view, calling it the Chinese Amazon, I guess, does the job for the purpose of this podcast. Yeah. But it, I think it's important for the audience to know that it does more than what we associate Amazon with. And I also want to make sure that we point out that on this side of the Pacific Ocean, right, we do have something like social credits for certain things and services that we use all the time. So your rating on Uber is a version of this. And when you rate your Uber driver, the uh, you can we rate things all the time, you know, Yelp reviews uh, and and with, with credit think, scores. And with credit like scores. Normally, right. it's not a social aspect, but it certainly impacts our lives. And uh, Sure, but that's uh, a slightly – I mean, that's certainly part of it, right? We're used to things called credit scores, uh, but credits uh, credit scores will not affect whether you are allowed to buy a plane ticket to fly somewhere. If right, you have right. the money, you can buy the ticket. It's like and that's, uh, merging – it's like what we all used to with FICO. Which, if you, if you look up the acronym, I forget. It, it's just the random group of people of Af- you know. There was a three guys who put together the system back in the fifties, and yeah. we call it FICO now. Combine the FICO, which is all about lending. When you've borrowed money, have you repaid it? Um, with like customer appreciation programs that reward you for buying from companies. Well, so with that, like yeah, social sure. media tracking, like are you are you a shit poster on social media? Do you? It's like combines these three kinds of data into one. Yeah, but that should be rewarded. Um, Well, it depends who's setting the policy, right? So so a private company – like if Amazon started doing this, there would be very few at least libertarian objections where if Amazon wanted to 
reward people and give them discounts or favors if they bought American products or if they bought patriotic products. You know, a lot of um, red, white, and blue. That's why CVS gives you a four foot long receipt. (laughs) Right. Uh, So there's no uh, libertarian objection to that per se. The problem is that uh, the Chinese government's plan for this universal system for 2020 is. uh, a lot more intrusive and worrying than a, an Alibaba uh, credit score, which uh, some people might find creepy. You know, do you want a, a big company like that deciding to reward you if you buy, uh, you know, good patriotic stuff uh, or foreign goods, or if you're buying uh, un- bad video games or whatever? That's but at least uh, privately, that's a it's private, about so, as soft a touch as you can get when it comes to sure. And what the Chinese government uh, has in mind is uh, a little. <laughs> <laughs> more worrying than that, yeah. Which you, it raises the specter of okay, so you are a dissident. You're not happy with the treatment of of you know oppressed people groups, um, and so you're complaining about the central government. The central government responds by putting you know lowering your social credit score or requiring Alibaba to do so. In which case, now yeah, you can't buy certain products. You're paying more money. I mean, your your cost of living goes up. Your ability to move throughout the country goes down. You, you might not be able to put your kids in private schools. Like the debtor system means you can't – you have to keep your kids in public school systems. Mm-hmm. So like the ramifications for your daily experience, your daily life get, get really bad really quickly. Well, uh, it relies upon a private data gathering capability such that I think it really throws into question the extent to which anyone can use data on a large scale liberally as it were or without illiberal consequence under a single party state or regime. Um, you know, if the, the act of even private collection knowing that were the state to want it, they would be able to have whatever access they wished. Um, whether that is morally defensible or at least um, pragmatically something that that ought or ought not be done, I, I should mention our, uh, our our producer Tess had just just texted me and said, "Has anyone seen the Black Mirror episode?" Where yes, you have yes, your, of course. Yeah. yeah. So, and I, I think the you know for for our listeners who watched it is that's one where there's like a wedding and her her like the premise her score is, goes down. Oh, oh, I hate. I hate that I know her like this. I forget her name. But Ron Howard's daughter, I know, she's a very good actress in her own right, but I'm sorry that that's um, how I know her. Uh, she plays uh, the protagonist in this uh, near future where uh, daily interactions Bryce are... are pre- that's right. Yes. Bryce Dallas Howard. Uh, she plays the, the main character and uh, throughout the day, interactions are rated. So uh, if if you if we had a good podcast, I'd rate it a certain number of stars. But it's not just that. It's uh, your barista. Uh, all kinds of day-to-day interactions are rated and you have a score. And uh, the nightmare scenario that plays out in this Black Mirror episode is that uh, she's been invited to a wedding, but thanks to a few things that happened to her, uh, unfortunate uh realities of the day mean that her her score goes down and down, which makes it more difficult to rent a car, uh, more difficult to get certain goods. And it's one of the great things about Black Mirror is it's sort of this this show that is taking a look at the the near and conceivable future, right? It's not – and uh, it's not far off what we're discussing today. But we should keep in mind, of course, that this is the Chinese 
government that wants to plan all this. And I have well, my even, own creepy concerns about a private system. Even right, in that, that Black Mirror episode, there was no coercion, as you would see within a state-backed social credit system. Um, and you know, I was frankly surprised that more characters didn't just walk away and live in a Kaczynski hut. Um, <laughs> this says probably not? more about you, Will. <laughs> I, I don't know. I just, Most people like to be part of society. <laughs> not like that. Society where everyone's raiding you all the time. That's terrible. I'm going to have to be pushed pretty far to live in a hut in the woods. I, uh, it's Sending fine for a weekend maybe. But I, yeah, this, is, this is the weird thing that uh, – going to bomb at it. Just get away from being raided all the time because it's intrusive and dehumanizing. Yeah. But I think – so we have this that, – that when people hear social credit systems – who've seen this episode, that's what they're thinking. Mm -hmm. And I think the thing to note is that this is – the government is not actually close to rolling out anything like this, that the current experience of most Chinese consumers with Alibaba's you know, Sesame credit has been actually overwhelmingly popular and positive. Uh, all the polls uh, that uh, you, know, you sent a poll to me, Will, it's, yeah, it's very popular from, over uh, there. Merricks.org. And, and part um, of that, something I think you teased, Matthew, which was that you have people. We, we shouldn't underestimate the benefits of banking the unbanked. Like, if you want to get, if if you want to join the global middle class, it is vital that you have access to credit. And there are people because it's it's a country that only in the last generation or two has emerged from you know essentially a pre modern ag agricultural economy. You, they don't have an easy avenue to get onto a banked credit system. So having social credit, in which you count transactions. Not just loans, right? Because there's a there's a carp for the horse problem here, which is you don't have a l lending history and you can't get it because you don't have a lending history. But since you have, you know it's it, and so a social credit system gives you potential access for hundreds of millions of Chinese consumers to getting on the credit at ride to the global middle class, right? And I think what people might be creeped out of, about is. Uh, the fact that uh, someone could spend $10 on or the equivalent of $10 on diapers or the same equivalent on hard liquor and it would have a different impact on how you're viewed by the private company or potentially even the state. Whereas you might repay that money regardless of what you spend it on, right? And be equally good to right. lenders, right? But it's the the nudging that I think freaks people out and uh, has this dystopian uh, atmosphere around it. There's much uh, informal cheating of this system or opportunities for arbitrage. You know, I'm, ring uh, I'm ringing yeah. up at the front counter. I give the, the cashier a dollar and he scans the diapers instead of the beer even though I'm buying beer so that it uh, shows up as though I'm responsible and I get discounts and, and good rewards when in fact I'm, I'm getting my beer and being naughty. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, it wouldn't surprise me, but I haven't seen like, data. You know, on I would expect yeah. just the keep an eye out. The for greater it, yeah. the rewards, um, the more incentive you have for those sorts of schemes. The same black way market. as uh, yeah, if if your smart fridge starts uh, selling data to your insurer and as to what you so put in, you it. would have a fridge that's connected to this to the network mm -hmm. that you buy all the good foods that reward you in your social credit score. That all go in your fridge is monitoring what you bought 
and you know refilling it. Oh, we talked about automatically. doing that here with health insurance. Right, exactly. So you have your official fridge that tracks, and then you have a black market fridge that doesn't track where you put your liquor. And yeah. right. I mean, you get the idea there. Like that's something. There's people are always going to find a way of gaming uh, gaming a system like that. Well, why don't we move on to uh, the kind of second part of our new surveillance tech in China. Uh, and that's facial recognition. And we mentioned this with the jaywalking ordinances. Um, and what that uses is uh, um, you know, cameras. There are over 200 million. There will be 300 million cameras in the next, I think, by 2020 surveillance cameras in China. So like every major intersection, street corners. I mean, in urban centers, it's it's hard to find the place in public that isn't covered by a surveillance camera at this point. And, and unlike surveillance cameras in other parts of the world where you see high density, they're networked, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a big change. You know, you hear that uh, everywhere in central London is covered by CCTV as well, but it's yeah. a bunch of private CCTV cameras that no one's really querying yeah. um, or, or saving. So the idea is as you, know, you jaywalk across the street, the camera is catching our image. It scans your face against the database and can generate who you are just by just from your face. Um, at least that's that's the promise of this. And then you do all that shaming type stuff we're talking about. Um, actually, they're they're also rolling out car tracking technology using cameras, not unlike the drone episode uh, that we we talked about in the previous uh, previous week, where in Baltimore they've been trying out drone tracking from the skies that the police can follow any car in the city as it drives around and thus track criminals, bank robbers, et cetera. Not drones yet. One day maybe. But those, those they like Cessna, Cessna, Cessna or blimps, right? Uh, in Baltimore, they were using Cessna airplane. I'm not aware of a they had a blimp and they lost it and it crashed into the Chesapeake. Oh, that might – yes. But we were – the persistent surveillance system. Yeah, program, just anything yeah. that yeah. you can right. take photos yeah. and then run back through the photos. But they're um, developing a similar system like using closed captioning TV uh, cameras which would follow yeah. a person, a person level or sure. cars. So um, now the idea here – like they, uh, there have been a number of stories about individual criminals caught using this closed caption facial recognition system uh like uh, there was a potato thief who stole $17,000 worth of potatoes as as one does i imagine will on the weekends you're not in your Kaczynski cabin you're out there stealing uh, potatoes but he got caught irish hero <laughs> he got caught going through a security checkpoint at a pop concert and the facial recognition software said this is a wanted man who's you know under a you know using fake documents um so these stories are getting are being highlighted by the government. Uh, there is something Orwellian about the idea of even police using like smart glasses with cameras in them with facial recognition technology, just scanning crowds looking for criminals. Um, but there's a bit of a mismatch between the official story of what this looks like and how it works and what is actually going on behind the scenes. So – um, like you look when you look at the jaywalking stories and you dig down a little bit, it turns out the system's not really automated. So they are taking videos of everyone as they jaywalk, but then someone has to actually go and feed the the system can't handle more than a few thousand faces being checked against the system. So they're actually doing it by hand on the back end. So the camera's capturing people's faces, but then they're by hand putting in batches of a few thousand people mm-hmm. 
to scan against. So it's not like they're catching them at the moment, instantly identifying them, putting them up and shaming them right then and there. It can often be weeks or months. And it's not very efficient if you're having to do it by hand. It kind of defeats the purpose. And I assume like most facial recognition systems we see in the world at the moment, you get a lot of false positives. I haven't – so that's an interesting point because false positives and false negatives are an important part of the efficiency right well, of any and, facial recognition system. And here system. you've got police wearing you know, glasses highlighting certain people's faces. So unlike you know, a false positive somewhere else, here it instigates or might instigate an immediate foot chase. Um, yeah, the I I want to make sure though that we we're clear that so a lot of the the jaywalking shaming from what I understand is not uh, even if it doesn't identify you immediately there will be some sort of detection that someone is jaywalking and it will uh, have a live feed of wherever that intersection is so it might not identify you but it's still enough that it would deter some people right, right? right. and. I don't think it's the case, and I, I maybe I'll have to be checked. But it, I don't think it's the case that in every region, like every every camera with facial recognition capability in China, is being uh, outfitted with the same database, right? But yeah. it's not that hard to think. Okay, well, in the center of this town, here are the ten thousand people most likely to be here at this. It's not that you don't need all one point four billion people in China, uh, all of that data, uh, and I think it is being used in some parts of China right, much more ruthlessly than in others. Yeah. Uh, there's a big difference between using it to deter jaywalking and using it to track people's religious practices yeah. and um, other things like that. Well, you can imagine, you know, uh, let's say in a particular region, the the local party chapter wants there, – there's a hundred people who they're particularly concerned about right now who, who have been participating in, you know, anti-government mm -hmm. activity. And so they say, okay, we want to find, we want to catch these people doing something wrong that we can shame them for. So we're going to have our database of a few hundred or a few thousand people. We're going to make that accessible to these jaywalking cams, to other kind of monitoring devices, so that they can be flagged instantly, and we can then bring them in for you know that that's our legal fiction for imprisoning or harassing them. Well, I've said in print before uh, that. My objection to facial recognition is this pervasive real-time use of law-abiding citizens. If you have a facial recognition system that is used as an investigation tool and it is only populated with data related to people with outstanding warrants for violent crimes, then my objections uh, reduce in number. But it's not clear to me that – I mean nothing like that is what we're seeing in China, frankly. And uh, it's uh, – I don't want to, to scare listeners that you know China is the future of American surveillance. We have very different political system and judicial system. But it it's frightening nonetheless to see uh, your fellow man treated in uh, this creepy way. Well, there was this interesting um, aspect of this where it's kind of – it's not unlike the social credit system where the official – uh, party line is that there is this, you know, robust single score system that's going to be developed within two years. Of course, the reality that that's hype. The reality is that there are bits and pieces of a system that are disconcerting in their own right, but we're not anywhere close to a full single score social credit system. The same thing is kind of true of facial recognition, which there is the 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 both the central government and kind of local party chapters and municipal governments have an interest in making people think that they might be being watched and surveilled and recognized 
you know, facial recognition at any given moment, even if they're not. Like it, it plays their benefit to hype up, to exaggerate how far this technology has been developed and how much it's actually being implemented. Well, this isn't a new kind of observation. I think people who pay attention to surveillance have said for a long time that some of the scariest implications of widespread surveillance is the the impact it has on law-abiding people. Yeah, uh, in, right. In the wake of the Snowden revelations, there are very interesting studies done on uh, Google searches, Wikipedia searches, and uh, Pew had an interesting survey on people's behavior. And it turns out that you don't have to be a Islamic fundamentalist to be a little creeped out by what uh, Snowden revealed. And you might be a little less likely to uh, Google certain things, uh, medical conditions, uh, fetishes, uh, religions, uh, anything related to uh, actually quite popular hobbies that have to do with gun making or anything to do with firearms. Uh, you might It's not a surprise that uh, law-abiding people change their behavior in the wake of surveillance, uh, either surveillance revelations or uh, not even revelations, just uh, new policies, like more cameras on the street. Uh, and that's the really worrying thing. That and it's just... not just people as well, but private firms that provide valuable services who PayPal will process payments for is to some extent contingent upon not just state regulation, but signals sent by the state as to what is approved and what is not. Right. You can look to something like Operation Choke Point there or more recent crackdowns on ASMR cameras post-FOSTA. So there, there's a sense in which, I mean, what we're describing here, and we talked about this in an earlier episode with uh, Aaron, um, the idea of Bentham's 19th century philosopher, his idea of the panopticon, right, where you have uh, you have a prison and in the middle there's a watcher who can look into the cells of the prison. The Now, it doesn't really matter if the watcher in, – in his panopticon, the watcher can see into all the cells all at once, but even the possibility of surveillance. So – he can't literally watch all the cells himself and just like here, the Chinese government can't actually see and process and prosecute based on the information it's receiving from 300 million CCTVs all at once. But if you can't determine when you're being but surveilled and when you aren't, right. you might as well be being surveilled all the time right. as far as you know. Is that camera in the corner of the corner of the street corner, is it watching? Is it not? I don't know. I better – It's safer to assume it is. Right. right. It's safer to assume it is. There's actually a – this is a, just a, a funny tidbit. It turns out the Chinese government calls its um, facial image database, calls it the Skynet, which I thought – I don't know if someone <laughs> – I mean someone in China is a big Terminator fan or if they just – didn't get the reference. So if you know anyone named Sarah Connor, uh, maybe <laughs> right. they shouldn't visit anytime soon. Maybe not go over. Uh, there is one little tech tidbit I wanted to throw in here and it isn't immediately applicable to like live camera, you know, facial recognition software, but you could see how it, it might be down the road. So at, at TechCrunch Disrupt, there was an anti-facial recognition startup. It's out of Israel called DID and like, you know, D apostrophe uh, D hash ID and ID is your you know D identifying disidentifying yourself, and what they do is they it's it's really about like social media images. So you share an image on Facebook, and what you don't want is some company reading the image, recognizing it's you, and then based on that activity you're engaged in, or based on information from that you know, knowing more information about you than you want them to know. 
Like they now know you went to the beach with your family on this date or et cetera. So there's lots of potential ways in which people don't want those images online giving personal information about themselves out. Well, there's this very bit of – it's a bit of a catch-22 when you think about these anti-surveillance methods and techniques. So you can use something like what Paul's just described uh, if – or you – there's a whole – niche uh, fashion industry of anti-surveillance yeah, clothing. Dazzle can, paint on dazzle, and then you look but fabulous. There's also, but there's wearing... also glasses. Uh, there's, uh, there are garments that uh, cloak you from thermal scanners. Uh, when you're talking about online, you can use Tor, texting, you can use Signal. The problem is unfortunately, some people are going to think you look suspicious in virtue of doing this. Yeah, you're wearing dazzle paint. You look like a, you know, 80s yeah. glam rock star. Sure. So that's that's the worrying thing. So I'm not I'm not against people right. using methods like this of course, but uh I think it's a regrettable fact that uh states will keep an eye on people who take evasive action when it comes to surveillance. But what I think we should expect is like we're talking about like in hindsight, this we should expect this to escalate. There will be a facial recognition, image recognition, arms race, essentially. But when, when you think about, though, that that's, I think, easy for, for us to say. So uh, in the United States, for the moment, and I think for the foreseeable future, even if CCTV uh, is outfitted with facial recognition technology, uh, you're not going to get pulled over by the cops if they notice that you're wearing a big hat or if you're wearing... Uh, for and but the problem is that we in, have anti-mask laws in many states. Yeah. Well, right, but there's a difference windows, between yeah, yeah. yeah a big hat, window tint, yeah, window tint, and it's like the a big the problem is that uh, in in parts of China where this has really been utilized a lot, that's it's just not an option. That it's not going to be good enough for when the Chinese police officer comes up to you to say, well. I object to this sort of thing, so I'm wearing a big hat and I don't need you. But it's just telling someone who lives in the Uyghur community yeah. right, that that is an option is, is laughable, uh, it's, which is a shame. This is a good moment to turn to. So we've been talking about two new kind of buckets of technology and how it's you know can be used for surveillance and social control in China. Well, let's talk a little bit about the people who are being uh, who are going to be affected by this in some of the worst ways for who for whom the who are being affected are, by it. Right. It's and, not will be. It's happening now. Right. Um, as as you listen to this podcast. So why don't we why don't we actually start with talking? You mentioned Uyghur activists, Uyghur dissidents. Flesh it out. Who are the Uyghurs? Why are is this surveillance technology social control? technology particularly disconcerting to the Uyghur community. Yeah, the Uyghurs are a Muslim minority who live in western China in an area that they would uh, they refer to as East Turkestan, what the Chinese refer to as, um, I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but Xinjiang province, which translates basically to New Frontier. Uh, it became uh, part of what you know, the People's Republic in the last century, and it's the Uyghurs are not uh, ethnically Han Chinese. It's a distinct uh, cultural group with its distinct language. Turkic it's Turkic, people. right? They're Turkic, right? So they have uh, a distinct cuisine, distinct language, distinct culture, and of course they're Muslim, and they have been the target of. I think it's fair. They are the target of the most intensive and highly sophisticated surveillance. Uh, regime in the world. And the Chinese state, well, it's not, I guess, popularly recognized and they don't necessarily sell themselves this way. It's, it's an ethno state. It is a Han Chinese state. To be Chinese is to be Han Chinese. And the 
reason why, well, the Chinese will, the government will make the argument that this intensive surveillance is necessary because, you know, the last couple of years, Uyghur separatists have uh, prompted, have committed atrocities. So 2014, some Uyghur attacks, you know, killed a couple dozen people. Uh, 2009, there's a lot of unrest in the region. But a lot of that, I think, uh, of course, is is worrying, but does not justify the, the the extent of the surveillance we see. And just to, I think it's important to outline exactly what we're talking about here. We're talking about iris scanners, Wi-Fi sniffers, mandatory ID, uh, the scanning of phones at checkpoints. You have their QR um, codes outside people's homes. QR codes uh, that the shopping police bags can being... scan to then determine who's supposed to be in the home. It's like a list of residents in QR form. Yeah, we have also uh, shopping bags being X-rayed. Uh, it's 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 horrible. And at least one Uyghur who made it to the United States has described uh, when he and his wife were detained, having DNA taken, um, having mandatory voice samples, uh, and of course mandatory facial scans. Uh, the the impact this has had uh, on the community is. Intense. Uh, the the UN uh, estimates that a, a probably around one million of these people are in what uh, the Chinese government will call vocational training centers, right? But they're they're, they're concentration camps. Uh, it's not, uh, and th I'm not using that term lightly. This is a mandatory uh, propaganda brainwashing centers, effectively. And uh, they the people who are deemed uh, eligible for this kind of re-education. Uh, uh, it is um, unfortunately down uh, in large part to religiosity, that the more devout a Muslim you are, the more that you profess your religion, the more likely you are to end up in one of these places. And But it uh, needn't be political Islam, Islamism in any sense. No, it can simply is, yeah. be trying to live a halal life, trying to follow the edicts of your religion as they apply to you and no one else and not trying to push them on anyone else, yeah. just trying to be a good person as you understand it. And yeah, that'll land you in um, yeah. one of these re-education yeah. centers. And I think it's fair to say that uh, this is the the worst uh, surveillance system we have on the planet. It's what the North Koreans would use if they could afford it and had the technology. Uh, but the Chinese certainly have the resources. Uh, the, the governor of the province used to run uh, Tibet, which tells you all you need to know. Uh, these these parts of uh, China just cycle are, them around like the British Empire used to. Right. Yeah. So th these parts of China are, uh, I suppose, historically difficult to um, clamp down on. Uh, and that's in Many different factors contribute to that. Uh, the the ongoing uh, worries that people around the world have with Islamic terror, of course, will provide constant excuses uh, because the Uyghurs are Muslim, mm -hmm. and the the Chinese ha certainly have uh, not just a you know there's this horrible cocktail of this this anti-religion sentiment, but also this ability to conduct surveillance uh, and. As I said earlier in the podcast, I don't want to make it sound as if you know the the, the what the Uyghurs are being subjected to is uh, what we should be ready for in the United States. We have a totally different political uh, and judicial system, but it is an example of um, how this technology can be used uh, when there aren't checks in place, and it's yeah. very very worrying. And you'd uh, earlier mentioned as well the the role that Chinese foreign investment plays in the somewhat muted response we've gotten with regard to this from 
the Muslim world, uh, particularly wealthier areas within? Sure. So we have a colleague, uh, Mustafa Akyol, who works here at Cato, who's uh, Turkish. And uh, I was speaking to him uh, about this uh, a while ago, and he said it was really notable that uh, the Turkish president uh, and the Saudis and the Egyptians are pretty uh, quiet about this this crisis in large part because they don't want to piss off the Chinese, yeah. uh, it, which is – it's easily the, the worst Muslim uh, – persecution uh, that's happening at the moment uh, from outside. Uh, and usually uh, a lot of Muslim communities will um, be outspoken when they see uh, persecution, whether it's in Chechnya or the former Yugoslavia. But and Erdogan this, this has remit. criticized the treatment of Muslims in Europe. Uh, yes, but uh, the Chinese uh, seem to be immune from that degree of criticism, which is a shame because they deserve to be uh, – the Chinese government deserves to – beyond the receiving end of severe criticism. So besides the Uyghurs, I mean, there are other communities that are not ethnic or religious communities that are also being targeted by the Chinese government. Uh, we have uh, ordinary consumers. We have journalists. Oh, Will, you, this is something you've done a little bit of research well, on. We've seen a, a broader media crackdown this summer and fall, uh, particularly targeting foreign media or source publishing capacity not controlled by the state. Um, Twitch has been banned. And beyond the suppression of Uyghurs, we've seen a broader crackdown on religion and religious media and expression in China this summer and fall. Um, while you certainly see the harshest conduct reserved for this Uyghur minority, we've seen a crackdown on unlicensed, that is ungoverned by the Chinese state churches, um, bulldozing churches, forcing churches to put pictures of Xi up on the walls, and now a bill prohibiting um, the live streaming of sermons or religious gatherings. Um, you often are seeing prohibitions on church or religious attendance by those under 18, which really you know, cuts religion off at, at the knees, as it were, um, if you can't inculcate or introduce your children to your religion. It's pretty hard for it to uh, last beyond your lifetime. Um, so we can understand both the Uyghur crackdown but also a broader media kind of anti-religious crackdown as, as part of a whole um, that seeks to cut out potential alternative sources of authority, particularly political authority outside of the Communist Party and the Chinese state. Yeah, there's this, you know, um, vast network of Chinese house churches um, and who, who will spread, say, sermons, like a recording of a sermon to, you know, there'll be a particularly good preacher. They can't meet in like an American style megachurch with seating for 20,000 people. They're in cells, essentially like cell, a cell structure in house churches, and they'll spread popular sermons among the different houses. Um, and that kind of thing is now being criminalized. It's uh, it's disconcerting. I mean, you consider that there are now there are far more um, Christians in China than there are in the United States. Actually, larger the entire population of the United States. So it's a very large community of people who uh, you're starting to see this kind of government crackdown on as well. Everyone's eyeing that you know uh, you have a, a connected, digitally connected consumer base of somewhere between. 
you know, three and a quarter to a billion people who have smartphones, use them, you know, use services like Alibaba, et cetera, for almost all of their purchases and much of their, their daily life experience. People are, you know, they're ready to try to cash in and get capture part of that market. They put pressure on their governments not to speak out against these kind of abuses because, well, at the end of the day, are are you know a few million Uyghurs in Western China worth the billions of dollars of law, of potential you know foregone profit from a Chinese marketplace? And so there's a there's a calculation going on there for a lot of um, Western Western companies, not unlike Google, who has you know the. Uh, Project Dragonfly was leaked in the last couple of months, where they're planning on going back. I don't back. see how they can go through with this. Especially well, let's, at this let's, point well, where well, they've dropped explain, out of this DoD yeah. contract. We should explain what it is. Yeah, let's what? let's explain the Project Dragonfly. So, uh, back in ten years ago, from 2006 to 2010, Google cooperated with the Chinese government to censor their search that database. So, if you put in Tiananmen Square. Nothing would come up, or it would, you know, it would redirect you away from stuff the Chinese government decided was a, a risk to the regime. So Google did once enter in. You know, they they went against their first principles, which you know, do no evil is the corporate slogan. They kind of violated that, cooperated with a, an authoritarian government. But by 2010, the pressure to stop doing so got so strong that they pulled out. Um, so for the last eight years, they haven't. There is no Google search function in China. But a new leadership at Google uh, has decided, look, again, this is a large market, a very potentially profitable market we want a piece of. And so the documents were leaked that they've been secretly considering rolling out this Project Dragonfly, a deeply censored version of Google search in which essentially the party could say, we don't want these search terms to pop up or if they do and pop up. And ties in searches yeah. to individual phone numbers and addresses. We can Such track that who's searchers, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Can be uh, policed. So, you know, a, a, again, the, the, we have a system in which government voices, uh, major companies around the globe aren't willing to speak out against human rights abuses against communities like the Uyghurs just because it would cost too much and we don't value their freedoms and their liberties as much as we value making money in the Chinese consumer marketplace. So that's the situation uh, that we're in. Uh, I think that's where we'll leave off this week. And until next week, be well. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. If you enjoy our show, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn about Building Tomorrow or to discover other great podcasts, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.